What's with this band anyway? I don't get it, can you please explain? Wait, like bands playing? Welcome to Bandsplain. I am your host, Yossi Salek. This is a show where we invite experts on to explain cult bands to me and to you. Today's episode is about Modest Mouse. If you've never heard Modest Mouse, I guess you never watched the seminal 2003 teen drama The O.C., and that is your loss. Here is what Modest Mouse sounds like. These walls are paper thin and everyone hears every little sound. My guest today is Justin Sales, an editor at The Ringer, an unflagging Modest Mouse enthusiast, and known hater of Family Guy. Welcome to Mm. the show, Justin. (laughs) Do you want to explain why I hate Family Guy? (laughs) I think people will pick it up when they hear you talk after a little while, no? Wow. Okay. Yossi is is referring to my accent, which is from Providence, Rhode Island. And um, the first thing that she said when I said that I'm from Providence is, oh, Family Guy. Oh, yeah, I read about this part on Yelp. Which is just about the worst thing you could say. I'm very sorry. We've started off on this one. <laughs> contentious, a contentious episode about Modest Mouse. Honestly, kind of fitting. Um, Justin, how does a young man in Providence, uh, Rhode Island, find his way to Modest Mouse? Oh, man, we're going to start right there because that's actually, I feel like that's a little bit of embarrassing of a story because I really when i fell in love with music i mainly fell in love with hip-hop and when i got to college like most young guys in college i wanted to expand my musical horizons um mainly to impress a girl Mm. but you know i felt like it was time for me to listen to more than just hip-hop and i had a friend who worked at the student newspaper with me this is just in a terribly embarrassing story right off the bat Mm -hmm. but um (laughs) he was just inherently cooler right he introduced me to pitchfork he just had right much better taste (laughs) in music this was 2002 and at that point i start going backwards and trying to unearth the indie rock that i may have missed and the name modest mouse was one that always stuck for me so i downloaded the album the lonesome crowded west off of soul seek Sure. Which would, yeah. If you know, you know. If you know, you know. Um, really couldn't be a more embarrassing origin story for me. But I think Modest Mouse resonated with me. Um, I, I heard on Lonesome Crowd of West, I heard some things that sounded like hip hop. They sounded like things I was familiar with. So like this became the indie band that I kind of latched on to right away. And here we are 19 years later discussing my love of the band. Yeah, that's a great origin story. I think I know you said it was embarrassing, but I think it's just actually emblematic of that era. And I think a lot of the things that you just talked about are going to kind of unravel as we talk about Modest Mouse, because I feel like as I was um, kind of prepping for this episode, 
um, full disclosure, I am not like a huge Modest Mouse stan, but there's like three Modest Mouse albums that I deeply, deeply love and like are really meaningful to me. So like I'm there. I'm there with you. Um, But they are definitely a band that, I mean, they kind of like blueprinted indie rock trajectory in a certain time. Um, And they are a cult band. Like they have one of the most feverish fan bases. Um, This morning I watched a most of a a homemade documentary by two mega fans that they made in 2003 where they followed Modest Mouse to a couple of cities and kind of low key stalked them and like maybe kind of filmed them without their knowledge. It's a lot going on. We're ready to get on our trip to Florida, about a 20 hour drive just to see one band, which is very obsessive, but I'm not obsessed. That's fantastic. To me, that's like what Modest Mouse fans are, you know? <laughs> well, it's 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 funny because you bring up the trajectory of indie rock bands at the time. Um, in the 90s and early 2000s, I think they were definitely like that cultish type band. But then in 2004, they just exploded. And all of totally. a sudden they got right. They had Float On, which was a massive hit. And all of a sudden to the cult fan base now you add people who caught them on MTV or on the radio or whatever it may be like people who were listening to Franz Ferdinand were all of a sudden now buying Modest Mouse albums shout out Franz Ferdinand I say you don't show, don't move, slow, I say. take me out great song great song okay yes but i okay before we go f- start from the beginning i will say i think that is also like a tale as old as time in a in a lot of indie rock stories like they're mine now they're on mtv now everyone knows them now i now i'm not down you know like the classic sellout myth we'll, we'll unpack it okay so first and foremost tell me who is modest mouse like what's the deal who are they where did they form what year did they form Okay. Often when we talk about Modest Mouse, who we're really talking about is Isaac Brock. He is the singer and the guitarist, and he is the one constant from that band uh, over the past three decades. Isaac was born in 1975 in Montana. I'm going to hit you with the first first line of the Wikipedia page now. (laughs) But um, he moves to Washington State after that. And the reason why that's all important is because like their sound becomes this very... Pacific Northwest indie rock sound. So it's important to situate them in that time and place. But Isaac's is funny because, I mean, if you listen to him, there's obviously something like myth-like to his voice, especially on those early records. Like he sings like a banshee, right? He plays guitar mm-hmm. like he's like he's trying to communicate with aliens. But <laughs> there's there's a couple myths to the Isaac Brock story. The most famous one is that his mother belonged to a religious sect that had ties to the Branch Davidians, you know, like mm-hmm. David Koresh, Waco. Sure. Um, that was eventually dispelled, right? His mother years later was like, it was very right-leaning, but it had nothing to do with the Branch Davidians, whatever. But the myth was that this religious sect had even its youngest members speak in tongues. And if you listen to those records, especially those early ones. It sounds like somebody who's very conflicted over religion. Totally. The other myth is that 
when Isaac was living in Washington as a kid, a flood came and washed away his trailer and he went to go live in the shed that was on the property. Each of these areas, well over four inches of rain in the past 24 hours. It's just an amazing thing to see as the wild winter of 96 continues. And that's like half true, apparently. Mm-hmm. Like apparently there was a big flood and there was a lot of mud in the house and he began spending a lot of time in the shed and that's where he taught himself how to play guitar. And that's where he ended up recording a lot of the early albums. But like, it's just these very like, myth-like things that feel almost biblical, right? Like these these floods that come through and wash away the trailer that they're living yeah. in. And now he has to go live in the shed. But anyway, fast forward a few years in the early 90s, Isaac's working at a video rental store. It's owned by his family. He meets Eric Judy. He's a bass player. Later at a show, they meet Jeremiah Green. He's the drummer. These guys decide to make music together. They'd eventually get some help from people like Dan Gallucci, who was in a band called Red Red Meat, if anybody really followed Pacific Northwest indie rock from the late 90s. That trio of Isaac, Eric, and Jeremiah, that's typically considered the classic Modest Mouse lineup. Okay. Well, okay. I'm just going to say before um, producer Dylan quits that um, she needs us to all know that uh, this band is from somewhere specific called Issaquah, Washington. Issaquah. That is, we need to know that because um, Issaquah was neither Olympia nor was it Seattle. And that was kind of really important in the formation of what became Modest Mouse because they did try to sort of differentiate themselves from those the sounds of those two places and also because Issaquah was very like Main Street USA uh, small town for a long time until the population started to explode which I think we'll get to that obviously really affected Isaac's songwriting and what he was talking about Um, and because producer Dylan is from the region she gave me an entire geography lesson on this and I have to share it Thank you very much, Dylan, because that was that's very important because what Isaac was really trying to do at that time was differentiate Modest Mouse from the grunge scene, which, you know, I think by the mid 90s was, you know, I, I don't know if that was the dominant sound that was actually like happening in the region at the time. Right. Like, of course, it was still popular on the on the biggest levels. Right. But right. But like the lo- what that's not like the local the local Seattle area scene. Right. Okay. Just real quick. Um, about 1994 is when the band put out their first anything, right? With K it Records, was, they recorded uh, at Calvin Johnson's studio, like an EP. Is that right? Yeah. It was a three-song single called Blue Cadet 3, Do You Connect? Blue Cadet 3, Do You Connect? Not available on streaming. Um, but in 1994, grunge was basically done. Like it was like it had this burst, but the the like reverberations of grunge were like in full effect. 1994 was like an insane year for alternative rock. Um, this is like the year that whole live through this came out. Oasis definitely maybe. Live Stone Temple Pilots is purple, which had the Vaseline song on it. The Bush album with like all those singles. Um, Beck put out 
his first album with the Loser song on it. Weezer put out their first album. This is all in the same year. Green Day put out Dookie. There was like a bunch of pop punk kind of spiraling up. Like Rancid put out Let's Go. Offspring put out their first album or not their first album, but Smash, their big album. And then there was like Nine Inch Nails had put out Downward Spiral. It's like really an insane year if you think about how much huge alternative rock was coming out. And then like on the tail end of grunge, you know, Pearl Jam put out Vitology, which was like kind of their like we calmed down and we love Neil Young album. And then Soundgarden put out Super Unknown in 1994. Um, the Nirvana Unplugged album came out in 1994. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the it was maybe six months after Kurt Cobain had died. And that was, you know, straight to number one on the Billboard 200. It went eight times platinum. So alternative rock was like big and shiny in 1994. It was mainstream. And, and I was not listening to any of it. I was just straight up listening to hip hop music. <laughs> you were just like in your room listening to De La Soul. Maybe. Shout out Prince Paul. Um, anyways, I think that's just interesting. That's what was happening you know, in the culture on the mainstream level, like while Modest Mouse was starting out. But there still was there still was a lot of indie rock happening. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, wasn't 94 also the year that Crooked Rain came out? Yeah. Pavement, Crooked Rain, um, Guided by Voices was definitely around. They put out B-1000, which is one of their best and biggest albums in 1994. Super Chunk had already put out like four or five albums including my favorite, Foolish, um, like Arches of Loaf were around for a long time before that. Um, Sunny Day Real Estate was a Seattle band that put out their first album in 1994. And then I think maybe, and like you could probably speak to this better than me, but maybe most importantly in terms of like explaining Modest Mouse and their inspirations and stuff or Isaac's inspirations, uh, Built to Spill had already put out their first two albums. <laughs> and treat people before that. I know I read that um, Doug Marsh was a huge inspiration to Isaac. Yeah, I was going to say 94 was also the year There's Nothing Wrong With Love came out, Mm -hmm, which is fun. Built the Spill was definitely an early touch point for people with Modest Mouse because there's a similarity between Isaac's and Doug's voice, especially when Isaac isn't screaming. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. Like when Isaac is yelping and when, when Isaac's like just shouting well over and over again, he doesn't sound anything like Doug. But yeah. like on the quiet moments when on a song like Trailer Trash or I don't I'm trying to think of some others right now, but some of the some of those early singles, he sounds very similar to Doug. And there's a similarity between the music that Pacific Northwest, the kind of very looping style of guitar playing that it makes sense why people compare the two bands. Yeah. Um, Built to Spill was from Boise, so definitely neighbors. Yeah. Built to Spill, of course, though, they were well, they were signed to Up, which is the same record label mm-hmm. that um, Modest Mouse would eventually put out their early records on. So in 94, they also began work on their first album, which wouldn't come out then, which I think we should discuss later. It's called Sad Sappy Sucker is what it came out as in 2001. Um, I don't think it's worth discussing now because I think it's more of an interesting what if, if you 
think about had that record come out in 94. But they began work on that. They gave a couple demos to Sub Pop. They didn't get a deal. Like Sub Pop just wasn't interested. But they took it to Chris at Up Records, who heard the songs and he loved them. And they began recording what would be their first album, which they put out on Up, which uh, would be This is a Long Drive for Someone with Nothing to Think About, uh, which is an incredibly, I mean, it's a, it's a long album for a long drive. It's very sprawling. Yeah. The songs are so long on this album. Like, it's kind of startling when you go back and you're like. Those first three proper Modest Mouse albums, those songs are so long. So I'm sure most people listening to this podcast remember buying CDs and remember that you could only get 74 minutes on a CD. Yeah. Those, those first two Modest Mouse albums ran right up to the limit. They were 73 and 74 minutes. And, you know, on this album in particular, like every song feels like it's like six, seven minutes. And I don't say that in a bad way. No, it's great. I mean, listen, college stoner Yossi, which we'll talk about her at more length also after we hear a song, loves these long sprawling songs. Like it's perfect. It's perfect music to smoke weed and just fucking, you know, vibe out to. Um, But let's hear... Usually I would let you pick the first song, but you already I know we are we already know the vibes. We already know what song we're gonna play from the first album first. Are we gonna do drama mean? We're obviously gonna do drama mean. Um, okay, let's hear drama mean. That was drama mean. What a goddamn gorgeous, beautiful song. Yasi, when we were when we were talking about doing this, you mentioned an experience you had once okay. listening to that song. Should we jump into that now? Yeah, I mean it's a little ahead, but so Modest Mouse played Coachella in fuck, I want to say 2013 maybe, and I was so excited and I took a bunch of mushrooms and I was just like waiting for it to start and they started with Dramamine. And I cried. <laughs> I just fully started crying. And also that set was really cool because um, speaking of going on too long and not caring about going on too long, they closed with Float On. But I mean, for anyone that's ever been to Coachella or if you can probably imagine, they're really strict about set times. Like they do not care about, you know, they're not giving you any edge. And Modest Mouse, and this is actually a good segue into I think we're going to talk about why the songs are long. This band is not a jam band, but they are not not a jam band in some ways. Um, and so Modest Mouse, of course, like their songs kind of take different lengths when they play them live because they're kind of jamming sometimes. And they get to float on and they were late. And I'm sure they didn't give a fuck. Cause I'm, I don't want to speak for Isaac Brock and the rest of the band, but like a song like Float On and Once It Becomes What It Becomes, I'm sure you don't like it anymore. And they just got cut off right in the middle of Float On. Lights on, sound off. <laughs> The end. <laughs> Dramamine is too good of a song to like be the first song on the first album of anybody. And I know they like technically had recorded one other album before and which we won't hear until later. But it's like they have no business, you know, having a song this good. Right. And doing you know, cursory research for this episode. I uh, 
stumbled across a great BuzzFeed profile. I can't remember who oh, wrote yeah, it. Oh yeah, I read. But... I read it too. It's really good. <laughs> it's 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 great. It's fantastic. It's I think the definitive thing I've read on Isaac. It was written by Jonathan Villania. There you go. The quote that sticks with me about drama mean from that, which I've had kicking around in my head, is you know most bands spend their entire career trying to make a drama mean, and they never do. Yeah. <laughs> and Modest Mouse did it on the first song on their first album. Totally. It's fantastic. It's, it's fantastic. It's so good. Um. I was when I was listening now, just like because, you know, thinking about it in the lens of how we're going to talk about this band and like put them in context. I was like, okay, this does sound so like out of nowhere a little bit. But then if you like kind of like rewind a little like the build to spill thing, right? Like I don't mean to keep bringing it up. It's only because I watched that Pitchfork documentary about Mm -hmm. Modest Mouse and Isaac like. The guy from Up talks about how Isaac said that, like, the only person that in the world that should be making music is Doug Marsh. So it's clear that, like, he had been listening, I'm sure, to Tree People, which is also very good if you haven't listened to Tree People, people listening. Um, but then, you know, Built to Spill in turn was, like, heavily influenced by, like, R.E.M., you know? And, like, then when I listen to that song, I can hear that. You know, I can, like, see the grandfatherness of R.E.M. present here in Modest Mouse. Do you think that everybody listening to this podcast knows what we're saying when we're comparing them to Built to Spill? I would assume based on the people that I assume listen to this podcast, but like, is there a world in which we need to play like a quick clip of, you know, the plan or something? So is it the plan one that you think that like will give people the right context? I think that works. All right. Let's hear a clip of the plan. The plan keeps Yeah, like vocally, they're so similar. But like you said, like built to spill and not so much screaming. Yeah. Isaac also obviously, I mean, again, I don't want to speak for him, but like this man has heard Fugazi. Do you know what I mean? For sure, this man has heard Crass because he talked, he he name checks Crass in a couple of interviews specifically about mm-hmm. his I- ideology, but that means you listen to the music. So like there's, there's like a greater punk sensibility in Modest Mouse than I think there is in Built to Spill. And that's kind of the difference. Absolutely. And there's something, so there's a lot of very sweet moments on this album, right? I think this is a long drive does a really great job at sketching out what the rest of their music, especially their next couple albums, is is kind of the blueprint for those albums. And the songs are alternately sweet and also pulverizing, right? Like, a song like Custom Concern is very pretty. When a song like Beachside Property... With a name like that, you think it would be pretty, but it's it's so fucking loud. I was, mm-hmm. Isaac just, I mean, I love that song, but Isaac is just screaming that entire song. But that's really drama mean though too. It's just alternates between those that really pretty melody and just this incredible loudness. Yeah, and I think I mean that's like kind of a hallmark of these like first three. Modest Mouse records. I think that's like what really resonated with people. Also, we should talk about the fact that, again, this is 1990, you know, whatever, six, yeah. Or let's say four, five, six, where this is all happening. Um, This is a long drive for someone with nothing to think about. That's all Modest Mouse did was long drives because this was, 
you had to tour all over the country. Like they're one of the bands that fully road dogged their way to like spreading the word about their band. They did a lot of house shows. They did a lot of underground venues. Yasi, when was the last time you went to a house show? (sighs) Damn. Honestly, not not recently enough. It's been a while. It's been at least like it's been at least two years. I'm thinking it might be like four or five years for me that I've been to like a true honest to God house show. I'm 39, so I don't know if they'll let me in anymore. Yeah, it's kind of <laughs> <laughs> like who's this cop? Um, yeah, their house shows, man. What a what a beautiful thing. What um, a time. What a time to have been alive. I want to play one more, or I want you to choose one more song for us to play off of um, Long Drive, just maybe as like a counterpoint to Drama Mean. Make Everyone Happy is this very pretty song that's very plainly being sung by a depressed person. But then you spoke to the jamming quality. Mm-hmm. The back half of the song just turns into this extended jam where I said this earlier about the way he plays guitar, but it sounds like he's trying to communicate with aliens. And it's just using feedback and distortions. And this is what a lot of his guitar playing would sound like. So I would vote that one. Okay. Here is Make Everyone Happy slash Mechanical Birds. That was Make Everyone Happy slash Mechanical Birds off This Is A Long Drive for someone with nothing to think about. Yeah. When they were young, they would have to play the show and then go sit outside after they got done playing because they were so young. Yeah, they were like teens playing at like places like the Crocodile Cafe in Seattle. Do these sound like songs that were made by teenagers? Like no. just in terms of the subject matter and what have you. I mean- you know, there were plenty of talented teenage musicians. So like, I'm not discounting the ability of teens to play music like that, but it always struck me. The subject matter seemed like could have been written by somebody like 15, 20 years older. Yeah. I think that's like Isaac Brock, right? Like teens can play any kind of music, right? And if I think you can make the argument that teens play better rock music in general, Mm -hmm. they're, they're, you know, they take more risks and they have more fucking spitfire or whatever, but you need that sort of like otherworldly figure like an Isaac Brock who's like I don't know just like channeling some shit that like is like beyond his years um, and you know you could say and as again as someone who's listened to a lot of depressing music in my life and sought it out I mean you can say that maybe that it's like that level of like psychological pain opens a portal to accessing, you know, this kind of, I don't want to say like wisdom, but like, you know, really opens people up in a way to communicating what they're going through. Yeah. This album is crazy. This wasn't the first album I came to. I came to it all kind of all three of them at once, but first was Moon in Antarctica, which we'll get to. This stuff changes, but I don't know if this review like came out I, I don't think this album was like particularly like covered by the press or anything that's my impression as well yeah yeah but Robert Criscow did review it at some point what he wrote about it is so perfect so his thing says long-winded young wankers so insularly indie they're incomprehensible to anyone who hasn't been softened up by wowie zowie the pavement album and the meat puppets 
These young Northwesterners have nevertheless stumbled into their own sound. It's tuneful, so what? It's halting, even worse. It's funny, now we're getting somewhere. It's direct, albeit arch. Ah, youth. It's harmonically quirky. There's the nub. It's like that, I mean, it's Robert Griscow, so. Shout out to the Dean. Literally shout out to the Dean. And why did I ever try to write about music ever in my life when like this person exists? But it's right. Like that kind of like it is like we were we were talking about it a bit before. Right. Like kind of trying to like trace back a bit of the trajectory, like vis-a-vis built to spill tree people back through like mm-hmm. REM and stuff. And those are all true. And like he does say the meat puppets, Tad, Mudhoney, the stuff that, you know, you literally can't avoid if you come of age, especially in the early 90s, especially in the Pacific Northwest. But like. Then it really did like come out of the blender something so unique. Yeah, absolutely. What you can hear it in Dramamine, and we'll get into it with other stuff when we get to my fave song later. But like from the beginning, I feel like they also had this like rhythmic quality that like that wasn't really common of indie rock at the time. Like it's it's a bit dancey. <laughs> It is. And you even hear that on songs like doing the cockroach off Lonesome yeah, Carter West and totally. like, and like they, you know, they had, they literally had a song called dance hall on good news for people who love bad news. I think that's a testament to Eric and Jeremiah that doesn't really they don't really get talked about. Like, like I said at the beginning, when we talk about Modest Mouse, we often are just talking about Isaac Brock. And it's the three-person band, really, at the beginning. And often I feel that the other two don't get enough credit in what made that music. Totally. Yeah, I mean, like, look, like you can have a genius, but alone a genius is nothing. You know, you need the people that are contributing the other things that make the music special um that was a really profound thought that i just had (laughs) okay so they make this album they tour a bunch they made a couple of eps after that eventually in 2000 before they had their big breakthrough they a lot of these songs would be collected on a compilation called building nothing out of something but those songs were mainly taken from earlier EPs, the ones that came out in the wake of this is a long drive for someone with nothing to think about. Um, There's the song Interstate 8, which is the title track from that EP. There's Edit the Sad Parts, which is, Jesus Christ, that's a devastating song. Um, The important thing is in these early years, before they were signed to Epic, before they were putting out these massive selling albums, they were putting out all these great EPs in between albums. And the EPs were good enough that when they were finally compiled as a best of kind of in 2000, the album building nothing out of something was better than most bands, actual albums. While like maybe they got a little more attention for these EPs after they, you know, had, the whole world's attention. I do want to hear Interstate 8 so that we can hear just sort of like the evolution of Isaac Brock's songwriting. Because, you know, this is written and put out before The Lonesome Crowded West. Right. So why don't we hear Interstate 8?
That was Interstate 8 off of the EP of the same name from 1996. It made me think of another band that like I feel like is super important in the like lineage of Modest Mouse, which is the Pixies. Yes. That song reminds me of a Pixies song, right? Like it has a very, and they actually like kind of have similar, that similar thing that we talked about, sing pretty, screamy, mm-hmm. you know, like Frank Black really did do that a lot. I'm shocked that it's taken us this long to get to the Pixies and We're I should have run. Brought- along with Dylan. I know. Okay. So the Lonesome Crowded West, would you say that like in terms of like the modest mouse real ones? the Reddit mm-hmm. group, the the diehard fan base. Mm-hmm. Do you think that this is considered their best album to those people? I think that it really depends on where you came in with the band. Right. Because uh, I, I think it's either this or Moon and Antarctica. Yeah, I land on that side myself. <laughs> By the way, I'm going to have to say Moon and Antarctica about a hundred more times. And with this accent, the family. It's just it is my Peter Griffin ass accent is gonna is gonna sound awful. But there's nothing funny about that. <laughs> oh my god, I can't wait for Michael to find fun clips from Family Guy to put around your talking. <laughs> oh god. Can, can I can I just do the Rob Harvilla thing and say boner jams? Is it, <laughs> that no, feels less is, embarrassing. This to is me. your this is your version of boner jams. Sex jam, sex jam, sex jam, and sex jam. When my little cartoon pops up, it's just Stewie talking. (laughs) This isn't even how I really talk. This is. This is how I talk. (laughs) Um, But I think it depends on where you came in with the band. And I mean, look, Lonesome Crowder West is where I came in with the band. It's my favorite. It's probably the album I've listened to the most in my life, if I'm being honest. And I don't begrudge anyone who would say that it was Moon and Antarctica as their favorite because they're kind of 1A, 1B to me. Yeah, totally. Heart Cook's Brain was the song that like where like it instantly clicked for me with Modest Mouse. Okay, then let's hear Heart Cook's Brain because you know who else loves Heart Cook's Brain? Tyler, the creator. Iconic 2012 tweet where he just tweeted Heart Cook's Brain by Modest Mouse. Good night. This is Heart Cook's Brain. My brain's the burger and my heart's the cold. That was Heart Cook's Brain. Off the lonesome crowded west. My brain's the burger and my heart is the coal. <laughs> the years move fast. The days move so slow. You know, you wouldn't think a lyric like my brain's the burger would be so emotionally moving. But here we are. <laughs> it's too bad with music and talk. We can't just Beavis and Butthead these songs. <laughs> <laughs> it would be cool if we could. Yeah. Like, haha, that part's funny. <laughs> Check it out. It's quirky. <laughs> I feel like you can kind of hear like the musical blueprint of this album in that song. I think you can, even underneath the turntable scratches, <laughs> uh, which was again really ahead of their time. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the reality is that a lot of those rap rock bands had better DJs than Modest Mouse had at their disposal. <laughs> like, you know, they didn't have DJ Lethal hop on. Uh, sure, hop sure. on this one. Cubert um, was busy. Or whatever. Hubert was busy. Mixmaster Mike was like, you know, he was doing his own thing. 
But that song, like for somebody who was looking to latch on to indie rock from a hip hop background, that made a lot of sense to me, even beyond the, the turntable scratches, which were terrible. And I, you know, I had to kind of ignore how bad they were. <laughs> but like it's mid tempo like that. He's playing like so high up on the fret that it like just becomes it's just this super infectious brain worm. I love that. I think that a lot of the sonic blueprint of this album is in that song. I think the song that you referenced at the outset, though, is probably the thesis for this totally. album, which yeah. is Teeth Like God's Shoeshine, which ties into a lot of what we were discussing earlier with you know his conflicted stance on religion, but also adds this new layer to it, which is gentrification and, in his words, the paving over of the West. Issaquah, the town I lived in, started out as a cute little town, and I got to see it very quickly just get mauled. He talks about strip malls. He talks about um, basically this beautiful landscape just being paved over for, um, you know, it's <laughs> it's and- it was really prophetic, though, because he wasn't even just talking about the fact that they were building malls. He was saying the malls are our soon to be ghost towns, which yeah. I don't know if he was like thinking about the rise of Amazon down the road and just like what have you. But like he saw these these newly erected giant shopping centers and yeah. sort of like, well, that shit's going to be empty in 20 years. And he's right. Totally. Well, let's hear Let's hear Teeth Like God's Shoeshine. And then um, let's let's talk about a little bit more about that and also about the making of the album. Um, OK, here is Teeth Like God's Shoeshine. Let's all have another orange That was Teeth Like God's Shoeshine. Um, need to really talk about something important to my heart. I don't know what was going on in Providence, Rhode Island, but that fucking Orange Julius reference, that really places me in time. Like, every mall had a fucking Orange Julius. What was it? Nobody understood. <laughs> it was very popular. Rhode Island wasn't so behind the times that we didn't have our, our orange Julius's. Um, You're like, babe, we had an orange Julius, okay? We had, we had, we didn't have there an were several, but we had an orange Julius. Exactly. Um, we had several malls with several orange Julius's. Why do you think he focused on the orange Julius instead of like your Auntie Annie's or something like that? What do you think it was about orange Julius? I, you know, maybe it's the mouthfeel of the words because <laughs> um, it does kind of hit better than um, Auntie Annie's or Aunt Annie's or whatever it is, um, the pretzel place. Um, as producer Dylan says, you can't do Aunt Annie's dirty like that. I don't know if I agree. Um, I mean, what you had only a couple of options, right? Aunt Annie's, Orange Julius, Hot Dog on a Stick. <laughs> Was that the name of the place? You've never had hot dog on a stick? No, I never had hot dog on a stick. That's the actual name of the place. Yeah, hot dog on a stick. And they wore those insane uniforms that were like striped rainbow hats. No, this this is fucking wild. Like, okay, I, huge I, news. Huge news from producer Dylan. Orange Julius is a subsidiary of Berkshire Hathaway. How the... F- Isaac Brock is even more prophetic. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I'm I'm sorry. That's sorry, wonderful. What? I'm I'm just really caught up on this hot dog on a stick. People. I'll send you a link. Okay. I always felt really bad for the people that had to work there because like the the outfit is truly clownish. Anyways, mall culture. This song, when I first heard it, you know, as like a kid who kind of like the first music I really connected to and grew up and with was like harder rock, quote unquote, but like really like first grunge and then punk, you know, like mm-hmm. th- through the door of Green Day into like just all sorts of punk. Um, this song to me like really hit because I'm like, oh, you really hear the punk influences in it. Like it's kind of a punk song, you know, I mean, it's not, but it is. Absolutely. This definitely has a, a punk energy. Yeah. He mad. I think if... I were Isaac Brock and I was growing up in like Issaquah, which as per Dylan was like, you know, kind of just like a nice woodsy mountain place until it wasn't until it was like just a hotbed of strip malls and malls like this would sort of shape my worldview, too. Also, we we haven't talked yet about how um, he was a big drinker. He was a very big drinker. Um, One of the things that I have picked up on a lot over the years as you know drinking has gone from like just being this fun thing that I would do to being like hey this is something that you actually have to like consider the consequences of as I've gotten mm-hmm. older um I've noticed that it really feels like the negative effects of drinking are really a big theme in Isaac Brock's lyrics like everyone always seems to be fucking mad at him and it's typically because of something he did when he was drunk and that's this is his own account of things in in most of his songs. Yeah. Okay. So we'll we'll get to how the drinking uh, more directly influences the music, but you, we're already hearing about it. And and like you said, there's a lot of lyrics where he's kind of lamenting uh, and apologizing for things that he's done while he was drinking. And I only brought it up because I feel like this anger feels like the anger of a drinking person. It does. Yeah. I mean, I've known a lot of young Isaac Brocks, right? Like, I mean, I hope I was never him as much as I as much as I love his music. But the tortured genius who, you know, and I don't I don't know what was actually going on. I just know what I've read about. So I'm talking about specifically when I'm talking about Isaac Brock, now I'm talking about Isaac Brock, the character in his songs. Sure, but, sure. you know, the tortured genius who probably drank too much and like, you know, was kind of a pain in the ass to deal with for everyone around him. Um, I've known, I knew a lot of those guys and a lot of them were super talented musicians. I mean, none of them wrote a song like Teeth Like God Shoeshine, but they've, they were fantastic in their own right. Yeah. I dated a bunch of them. Um, Lonesome Crowded West kind of, I don't want to say like put them on the map, but it was really well received. Like, Mm -hmm. I think it got their name in a lot of people's mouths and like, it's like the Rolling Stone reviewed it, I'm pretty sure, which is like kind mm-hmm. of a big deal coming off of an indie label like Up. Yeah, absolutely. It meant that like enough people were talking about it and it was like in the culture enough that they like felt they needed to talk about it. Three and a half stars. I'm looking at the review right now. <sighs> They're wrong. It's They're wrong. wrong, but you know, it's just, it's just important that they were represented here. So I can live with the three and a half stars, but damn. They kind of like liken this to a concept album, which isn't wrong. <laughs> like, it kind of is a concept album. Yes. I mean, when you look at Teeth Like God's Shoe Shine, and then you look at like Jesus Christ Was an Only Child and things like that. And like Cowboy an, Dan. You know, like it, it's it's all living within this world of the the Wild West, right? 
but the Wild right. West as reimagined through the lens of like 1997. That's that's wonderful. Cowboy Dan is a fantastic song. Cowboy Dan um, is really good. Yeah, I I love Cowboy Dan. I was I was listening to Cowboy Dan a lot last night actually, and it's just fantastic. Why don't we listen to Cowboy Dan and then we'll move on um, from Lonesome Crowded West, even though we don't want to because it's one of the best albums. This is Cowboy Dan. That was Cowboy Dan. Um, Cowboy Dan, allegedly the name of a friend of Isaac Brock's stepdad? No, his father's his friend. dad's friend. Okay, his dad's friend, not his stepdad's friend. Um, but this guy had... Cowboy. No, right. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently the guy hated the name until he heard the song. And even though the song has nothing to do with him, which thank God, because <laughs> it's... I mean... I think that over the course of the song, Cowboy Dan becomes something of a sympathetic character, but he certainly doesn't sound like a good guy. <laughs> I mean, Cowboy Dan, the lyrics, like, you get the sense that he's Cowboy Dan is Isaac Brock. You know, like, he drinks and gets mean. There's, mm-hmm. like, you know, he says, God, if I have to die, you will have to die. Like, you know, like we've talked a couple of times about his relationship with religion. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a very like inventive and interesting way to put himself really vulnerably in the album. Not that he doesn't do it all the time, but like this, this song in particular like really gets me because I'm like, oh, wow. Like you're really talking about your drinking problems. (laughs) Like, yeah. Putting it really out there. And in that really beautiful breakdown in the middle, because the song starts loudish and then breaks down really beautifully and then gets super loud. But in that middle section, it almost feels like Isaac's in the mirror pointing the finger at himself, you know, mm-hmm. talking about how terrible he is. That's how it yeah. feels. Now, I don't totally. know if he's speaking to the character or himself. I think your observation that he's probably speaking to himself makes a lot of sense. But when he says, whenever you're talking, you're just moving your mouth. That feels like something I would say to myself when it's like, oh, just shut the fuck up. Right. <laughs> like, just like, what, what are you even talking about? Yeah. That's what I say to myself every time I listen back to cuts of these episodes. Well, that's me in the I'm... mirror, me in the corner, <laughs> losing my religion. <laughs> Go on. I do want to point out one thing that I wanted to say about the song Trucker Atlas, which is a fantastic song, which is a 10 minute song, which I love it that the producers just let them go. And they just jam for 10 minutes. And by the way, it's probably because of the song title, but it's perfect road trip song, especially, you know, I remember when I drove cross country, like listening to that song driving across like the Rocky Mountains and it was like it sounds so cliche but it was so fucking beautiful yeah um this album I just before we move on I want to say while it didn't get a lot of press coverage at the time in terms of like mainstream press coverage I'm sure it was like written about in zines around the country um retroactively it has been you know upheld as you know, Pitchfork called it, I think um, it was like number 29 in their 100 greatest albums of the 90s. Spin put it like 59 in their 100 greatest albums of 1985 to 2005. Like people put this album pretty high on lists in the indie rock canon. Yeah. I think it resonates with you and it resonated with a lot of people. Um, I think Isaac Brock is talking about class. You know, I think that's like a really, that's sort of like a really deeply buried 
underlying thing here is like there's a lot of class considerations and like he did grow up in a trailer park and like you know he's coming at the world from that lens and I think that's something that is really important to think about as we get into Moon in Antarctica. Yeah. Before we move on from Bankrupt on Selling, I do want to shout out the absolute heartbreaking final line, which is when she used to be sober and I was kinder. And like when that line hits every time, I think to this day, I still get chills. And it's very hard for me at the age of 38. Thank you for making me admit my age on a podcast. <laughs> um, but it's very hard for, me for a song to give me chills, and especially yeah. one that I've heard hundreds of times. And the final line of Bankrupt on Selling does almost every single time. You know what? As a gift to you, Justin, we're going to play Bankrupt on Selling and then we'll move on to Moon and Antarctica because I think it's a nice transition. Here is Bankrupt on Selling. I still love her, love her more when she That was Bankrupt on Selling. Um, So after the Lonesome Crowded West, I don't know much about how or why Modest Mouse was picked up by a major. Built to Spill was already on Warner Brothers at this time. Like, so there were some other like bands in their sort of milieu that weren't these huge alt rock bands that were. Um, getting signed to majors and I and I think you could make the argument we were still in the feeding frenzy of you know post grunge 90s guitar music um, major labels like constantly just looking for the next thing absolutely okay the last line of that song Justin that you mentioned before that really uh, gut punches you and not to bring it back up um, moments after we've heard it but I still love her loved her more when she used to be sober and I was kinder right We've talked about it a bit, but like drinking plays a large role in uh, the Isaac Brock story. It does. Yes. Um, Both on and off record. Yeah. Let's I mean, I think it's known fact, known mythology around the next album, Moon and Antarctica, while they were recording. What happened, Justin? Well, he went out. He got drunk and got into a fight. I don't know if he got sucker punched. I don't know if he pissed some guys off, but they broke his jaw. Yeah, the the official story, I think, from Isaac is that he doesn't know why. He was just trying to be friendly and make friends. <laughs> which, <laughs> which is I kind mean, of amazing. It's probably true. And it's like, you know, when some like, drunk <laughs> guy... And I guess they, they like, called him cowboy because he was... And he was like, what? Cowboy? And it's because he was wearing the official uniform of all um, indie rock dudes circa 1999, which is a Western shirt. Yeah. He gets knocked, like, literally knocked the fuck out. And they break his jaw, like you said. Yeah, and these jaw gets wired shut, and unfortunately, there's no great Kanye West through the wire moment of him trying to sing songs through the wired jaw. But, you know, at one point, I think the legend is he literally ripped the wires out with a pair of pliers because he didn't want them in any longer. That's man shit. This album is the leap to the major label. This is the album where they were like, yes, I think it was a Sony subsidiary. Epic Records. Yeah, they got called up to the big leagues after the Lonesome Crowd of West. They had enough of a fan base and they got, you know, they finally had a budget. And, you know, we can talk a little bit more about the songs and what that meant for the songs in a little bit. But there were lots of calls of selling out, which 
was really a thing in the early 2000s, which I don't think kids today understand the concept of selling out. For the band's plan drinking game, this is one major <laughs> one, which is every episode we must say kids today don't care about selling out. <laughs> I think for people our age who grew up with like it being such a big deal and seeing, even though I guess ultimately it wasn't such a big deal because many, many, many bands did it. Eventually, capitalism wins. Eventually, capitalism wins. I always remember the punchline kind of being that Modest Mouse ended up in a minivan commercial for, I believe it was... Nissan Quest. Oh, gotta see, gotta know right now. Moms have changed. Shouldn't the minivan... I'm coming into the band around this time, right? Because I discovered them in the early 2000s when I'm in college. They had already put out this record. And then like when I start to like dig deeper into the lore and when I start to connect with people who were fans of Modest Mouse, they're, you know, Moon and Antarctica was this point of contention because it was like, is this the sellout move? They were in a minivan commercial. It's a great record, but how, you know, but it always had a knock against it because it was the soundtrack for the Nissan Quest. Yeah. Isaac Brock has said some really interesting things about this move because he's been interviewed, obviously, a lot about it. Um, He said um, this year, actually, in an interview, he was like, a lot of my politics were born in rhetoric taken from crass records. I was pissed off at people. It wasn't even their fault about where they were standing with class and shit. I drew a line in the sand, which I don't think is necessarily the way to solve shit, but I was very cognizant of the blue collar angle. Personally, I struggled with the idea of being a sellout. Like, ah, this is very unfugazi of me. Um, But then I think ultimately, he says it in two different ways. He brings it up because he he had dishwashing jobs. And someone was like, oh, where's your integrity? And I was like, I have two dishwashing jobs. Where the fuck is my integrity now? I'll take the money to not be poor for a second. Right. Like, the thing that we don't discuss enough when we discuss selling out is you have to be privileged to like ultimately believe that in your core that some musician or some artist that you love doesn't deserve to be paid properly for their talents. Yeah. That's not what happened here. They made music that sounded better, right? Like I think one of the things that we didn't discuss on Lonesome Carter West is when they brought in a producer like they brought in a second producer to work on it, their directions to him were literally shitty this up a little, right? Like they wanted it to sound dirty. I think it was Phil Eck. Shout out Phil Eck to the producer for Lonesome Carter West. And Moon in Antarctica is not that. No, you're right. And also, I mean, even like, yeah, does it sound cleaner and better? Yeah. But is it a pop record? Did they like complete? No, it's the Moon in Antarctica is really weird. Like the songs are weird. There is, there's no like, oh, we made a single for MTV. Like, that's not happening here. Also, with their budget, they brought in a new producer, and it was Brian Deck from Caliphone. And (laughs) that's not what you do if you're selling out. You're like, oh, I'm going to work with fucking Caliphone. Yeah, they didn't get Rick Rubin on the horn. Right. So this is a lowercase s selling out. This is just, like, people taking a major label's money and, like, realizing what they could create once they had greater resources. Yeah, totally. I mean, I I did see some interesting, um, I don't have it directly in front of me, but something that also Isaac Brock said in an interview about this was like, 
that it ultimately didn't even matter because like when you're Indian making an album, the studio is like, well, how much money do you have? Okay, we'll make it for that much. And then they just say the same thing when you're on a major. And so it's like you're going to spend all the money you have regardless. And like, but, you know, I think the money had something to do with it, probably bought them a bit more time. But then also, like, we started talking about it, the incident, um, putting him in the Mm -hmm. hospital, all the vocals were done. So it didn't kind of impede on the vocals, but he had like a fuck ton of time to fuck around on his guitar and like think of new things that he needed to add guitar wise. And you can hear it, right? Like they're so layered, these songs. Yeah. The difference between the Lonesome Crowded West and Moon in Antarctica is the ability to use the studio as an instrument, right? Like I think about Styrofoam Boots, the last song on the Lonesome Crowded West, that song just ends. Right, like it just all of a sudden, like they're jamming and then they just stop playing. It's just like one, two, three, four. That would not happen on Moon in Antarctica. That is a very tight record. There's a lot yeah. of like production tricks, there's a lot of layering, there's interludes that are like it's kind of sequenced, not like a lot of indie rock albums at that time would have been. It's interesting that you brought that up because I was listening again this morning and I was like, Fuck, I forgot how much I like the, se- the, not just the sequencing, but I don't know what this is called, but like, there's no pauses. Like, right. there's, no, there's no silence in between tracks. Like, it really just like seamlessly goes from one track to another and it fits so well. That's like how they wrote this album, each song dovetailing into the next, like, is really cool. When you get Perfect Disguise, just kind of those last notes just kind of lingering and then playing over the beginning of Tiny Cities Made of Ashes. Exactly. (laughs) Like things like that are, they just sound absolutely amazing. Okay. Why don't we hear a song off this album? We can do Third Planet, I guess. Yeah, I love Third Planet. Okay, let's hear Third Planet. Your heart felt good. It was dripping pitch and made a wood. That was Third Planet. Um, This song makes me sad. How do you feel about it? (laughs) Yeah, all the songs on here are extremely sad. And I think the music kind of kind of belies that. Well, some are angry also. Yes. Like (laughs) what people are made of is a very angry song. Yeah. It doesn't feel like necessarily a shift from where he was at mentally on the earlier records, but it does certainly kind of represent where he was at at this time. Yeah, I don't know. It's like it's so meaningful to me because it was it was also like unlike anything I had really heard, you know, like they were doing things that a bunch of other people started doing after this and a bunch of other bands kind of like took in different directions. But like Mm -hmm. you mentioned Tiny Cities Made of Ashes when we're talking about the sequencing, like that is probably my favorite song on here, like enduring, which is weird because like that's not probably anyone's favorite song on here, but it's just like the one I always come back to because it's so good. So let's play Tiny Cities Made of Ashes and then people will hear what we're talking about and we can talk about like w- where that started to really proliferate in like other parts of indie rock. Okay. This is Tiny Cities Made of Ashes. We're going down the road Tiny Cities Made of Ashes. I'm going to hit you on the face. That was Tiny Cities Made of Ashes. I have a lot to say about this song, Justin. How big of a Rapture fan were you? (laughs) Honestly, fucking House of Jealous Lovers still slaps. Mm, Absolutely. 
It's a fucking banger. I feel like I saw them play back then, like early 2000s era. Um, This bass line (laughs) is Mm. so fucking good. Like it just like grabs you. And anyways, this is a dance song. That's what we're we're like getting skirting around here. Like this is like such a dance song. And like indie rock definitely like veered off in that direction in the early 2000s. Yeah. This song is referencing The Great Gatsby (laughs) is another layer, (laughs) which is which is okay. I mean, I don't know if that's been ever confirmed or denied, but like that's the, you know, Valley of Ashes and The Great Gatsby back to class stuff. I just feel like there's so much going on here. Right. Valley of Ashes and The Great Gatsby kind of represents like Gatsby being hopeless and also poverty. Right. Like it's like that was like the place back in like between West Egg and Queens that was like industrial and like mm-hmm. poor and and that city tiny cities made of ashes i i don't think it's not a reference to that okay i i hadn't considered this yossi so why didn't you ask isaac in your interview you are blowing my brain right now so <laughs> i've totally ceded the floor to you on all things tiny cities made of ashes i don't know whatever the truth is i want to believe that because i think it's cool and isaac seems like a you know he seems like a bookish kind of dude the Name of the band, which I don't think we've said, is a reference to a Virginia Woolf short story. Yeah. So this is my kind of guy is what I'm saying. Mm. And if anyone's going to reference The Great Gatsby, it's going to be Isaac Brock in a dance song where we're drinking, drinking, drinking Coca, Coca, Cola. I think it's funny that Tiny Cities Made of Ashes is is definitely a dance song. Um but it also comes on an album that has wild packs of family dogs and lives and all these really down-tempo songs. Um, the only other song that I think even comes close to, I mean, nothing achieves that energy, but the only other song that I would describe as like feeling really upbeat or at least getting like it, like raising the energy to a certain level is uh, Paper Thin Walls, which I yeah. think was also really unique for the band at that time because that might have been the poppiest song they had written to that point. 100%. And I think and I think that may have kind of signaled how they were growing as musicians and the things that would come, which we'll get to on the next album. You know what? Let's hear Dark Center of the Universe. Dark Center. Okay, that was Dark Center of the Universe. This seemed like the album where Isaac really just started calling bullshit on everyone, like real bullshit on everyone else, right? Like building nothing out of something. There's a song called Other People's Lives where he says, the basically repeats again and again, other people's lives are more interesting because they're not, because they ain't mine. Right. This one has a song called Lives, which he doesn't think other people's lives are interesting at all. It's, it, mm-hmm. the, the, the memorable lyric here is, Everybody's afraid of their own lives. If you could be anything you want, I bet you'd be disappointed. Am I right? Um, is by this point, like I, I wouldn't say that he was necessarily a cheery optimist on the early albums, but on this one, he's just like, fuck all of you. What do you think, Shift? I was going to ask you, because I feel like the subject matter, like, truly shifts between um, Lonesome Crowded West here And the tone shifts a bit too, right? Like in Lonesome Crowded West, he's kind of observing the world outside of himself and like lamenting how depressing and disappointing it is. 
And here, I don't know what's happening. It's like he's still he's not just observing the world outside of himself. He's like observing the universe and his place in it. You know, they were probably a little bit weathered as a band at that point, And he's a little bit older. So he's a little more jaded. Mm. And also, um, he had things going on in his personal life. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important to talk about like Isaac Brock is a complicated figure in music. And a lot of it has to do with in 1999. I think the official like story around it is like the band came out to see like the word rapist spray painted on their van. Mm-hmm. on their practice space. I can't remember. But long story short, a young woman in Seattle accused Isaac Brock of rape after spending an evening with him at the Cha-Cha in Seattle and going home with him. She was 19. There was never a trial. I don't think charges were ever officially pressed, or if they were, I think they were dropped. Um, there, were, there were no charges. There no and charges. She eventually recanted her story which of course only just means that she withdrew it from the record it doesn't mean that she was saying that it didn't happen yeah and there was a front page story on um seattle's like really popular alt weekly the stranger about it it was a dark time absolutely i think for people that got into the band later i don't think they even really know the story um totally it was i don't want to say brushed under the rug because it certainly wasn't in Seattle, the stranger covered it pretty in depth, but it was treated in such a way that it was like people, fans, other critics, they did not want to engage with it. Yeah. And Pitchfork literally lost their mind over it. I think it might have the highest score of any Modest Mouse album on there. They gave it like a 9.8 or something. Yeah. I mean, it does really well for a band that a couple years ago was singing about all their car troubles that they were having when they were driving across the country to tour, to do house shows. Totally. You know? It charted, it, you know, it broke the Billboard 200. I think it peaked at 120, which is like kind of amazing <laughs> for a record like this. Um, sonically, this album, like we talked about, is by nature of more money, more time, more more access to better equipment, um, Isaac Brock's more access to time in his own head where his jaw is wired shut and he can guitar away his life. This album becomes very like nuanced and layered and like what we're saying. But it's interesting to me that like two things that Isaac's talked about is like a that they had no intention to do that. Like it just happened like and that even further that all the songs are never even written. They just sort of like keep writing them until they're recorded and then that's the song and then also that even at the end of this he wasn't happy with the mix he was like upset he wanted to make remix it himself he wanted to spend like another like six months doing the mix and he wasn't allowed he's never happy with the mix that man that man fucking (laughs) hates every every mix of his album um in fact we can talk about a little when we get later but he got to a point with it with one album where he just said he was just layering mixes on top of each other and he's like this sounds great just fucking put it out that's where it's like thank god there's someone to stop these people i know before they and ruin this, their own output <laughs> the album that album sounds so good though it's like moon and antarctica it, it sounds so good not the album yeah. i was just referencing the moon and antarctica sounds so good it's 
because, you know, they're still doing everything very analog at that time because at that point they were obsessed with doing that. But like with the major label, with working with more talented producers, with the studio as an instrument. Um, As you love, you love to say. I love to say if somebody can like actually like I just picture like Brian Wilson just like banging on the walls of the studio. (laughs) Um, But it just sounds so good. And we talked about Lonesome Crowded West being my favorite record because that's where I came into them with because that's just the record that that, that resonates with me because Bankrupt on Selling makes me weep uncontrollably. Mm -hmm. Um, It's my favorite Modest Mouse record, but God, when I listen to this record, I'm like, this might be like the actualization of this band's potential. Totally. Not to bring up Mr. Christgau again, but I must because Mm. he always says it best. This is just like the last line of his review. Unlike other rock pessimists we might name, Isaac Brock is so modest that he ends up with an uplifting representation of human life as damn shame. Fuck. Babe, arm hairs up. Yeah. <laughs> Full attention. That man can, in like 20 words, do better than I than I do in 20,000. Same. Chris just, Alhive. Um, yeah. Okay. So the Moon in Arca, like we said, it really did well. It had, I think, one negative review from Spin, but they were wrong. What happens next? The record did well enough that there was enough interest in the band that they went and reissued what was supposed to be their first album right after this called Sad Sappy Sucker. First, later that year, they reissue what was supposed to be their debut album before This Is A Long Drive For Someone With Nothing To Think About. Um, It is called Sad Sappy Sucker. I have grown to really like a lot of songs on this record, but one thing that I'm very curious about would this band's trajectory have changed if this was their first record? Because mm. there is not a drama mean on this record, right? Like we talked right. about drama mean being the A1 side one, oh my God moment. Yeah. But there's not this on this record. There are a lot of like interesting songs if you're a Modest Mouse fan, but it's very incomplete. Um, some of the songs are just feel like absolute sketches. I have no idea if they were just demos that made their way onto the record, or if they were actually supposed to be there like that. The end of the record actually ends with just, um, I can't remember the name of the thing, but it was basically Isaac just calling and like leaving 30 second sketches of what songs could be. Mm. It's like, if you enjoy this record, all of a sudden you're listening and then the last five minutes of it are just like these 30 second, like basic voicemail vocal doodlings. Um, It's a really weird, interesting record, probably for completists only, but I really do enjoy some songs on there, like particularly Dukes Up, which I think would have been the single had the album actually been released. Do you want to hear that song? Yeah, let's hear Dukes Up. So this was recorded, I believe, 1994. So this was a couple years before this is a long drive for someone with nothing to think about. Okay, this is Duke's Up. That was Duke's Up. Kind of an interesting power move, not to talk about ego again, but like to feel so confident of your like earliest stuff that after a big album, you're like, yeah, I'll put that out too. 
enjoy it. Yeah. I mean, part of that. You're welcome. (laughs) Part of that's because like the interest has probably never been higher, but it's probably like, I think there is a little bit of ego in that at that point where it's like at that point, it's like, well, fuck it. Why wouldn't people want to hear this? Right. I'm glad it exists. But yeah, you're a completist. So. But what what do you think of that song? I mean, it's good. Like, it's definitely like rudimentary compared, especially coming off the heels of something like Moon in Antarctica. But like, it's definitely enjoyable. And it's like, yeah, if you like Modest Mouse, you're going to like that. <laughs> so right. it's, it was a smart move. If you're um, one of the heads, that's for you. Well, also, like, indie rock is like fucking on fire now. You know, like, I think people were like hungry for all of it. Like, we haven't really talked about like other bands that were getting really big in this space but you know we're kind of hitting peak early this wave of indie rock one of the things that's interesting to me is within a few years people are no longer putting built to spill and modest mouse in the same breath because built to spill they continue to put out excellent records but they just never like jumped up to that next level despite being signed to a major they were always just a indie rock concern even as they were on a major label. Well, why is that? Because they didn't put out good news for people who love bad news. Is that where we're going? I was going to take a quick detour <laughs> okay, and say that <laughs> and say that Isaac Brock was also at this point had enough pull that him and Eric Judy went to go start another band called Ugly Casanova, which is just them jamming with all their friends. And this was in 2002 they put out a record called Sharpen My Teeth, uh, Sharpen Your Teeth. And um, there's a song on there called Barnacles. I was never the biggest like fan of the Ugly Casanova record. There was a little too much like fiddle involved for me. Like it just is that what the difference was? I've I've never listened to Ugly Casanova, so is they were like, oh, we can do some country. Is it gets a little bluegrassy, which of course also kind of bleeds itself into the next Modest Mouse record. So I don't know if there is like that much of a of a difference really other than you start to see the next phase of Modest Mouse take shape. Mm. The song on there I really love and I don't think we need to play it in full but we can just play a quick snippet of it is called Barnacles. I don't know me and you don't know you so if it's a good together cause I knew you like I knew myself It sounds like a Modest Mouse song in the sense that it's Isaac Brock singing and it has some of the hallmarks of a song but it does sound it is clear at that point that this is not a song that Modest Mouse would have necessarily put out. This is a song that belonged on a side project. But it's just, it's a really, again, pretty melancholy song. Um, you don't say. I, yeah. But it's it's very sweet. There's no screaming on it, right? Like, there's none of that. None of that anger is there, really. We mentioned this really early on, but it's kind of really gelling for me right now how much Modest Mouse has in common with Pavement. Whereas like Pavement, I think has a similar interplay of sadness and anger or like, you know, except it's all through the lens of who cares. Whereas Isaac Brock's is all through the lens of I care very deeply. Yes, I think, I think that's fair. Um, yeah. That's it. I just wanted to walk you through the thought process. Okay. I think that's fair is the best I get. I guess it wasn't a mind blowing point. Thank you. Producer Dylan gave me a GP. Not even, she didn't even spell it out. She just said GP, but that stands for good point. I know we have a shorthand. Um, <laughs> yeah. Barnacles sounds good. It's sad. It's sad. But then Modest Mouse go very happy. Or at least 
their version of happy, right? Babe, it's right. Fucking, that, we're we're cooking with gas now. All right, because, let's do it. Okay, a lot happens here though. <laughs> Before we get to good news for people who love bad news, um, integral band member. Mm-hmm. Jeremiah Green leaves the band because he had a nervous breakdown. Yes, he left for this record for that record only. Um, right. He would eventually come back, and he's still in the band, but he was not around for that record. And they start adding musicians too, like extra people. Mm-hmm. Well, that makes sense. That was kind of always their like, let's all jam together vibe. You know, they're homegrown. <laughs> Everyone get on stage. Um. I don't know a lot about good news for people who love bad news, you know, besides the fact that it was like a monstrous hit because of the song Float On. Yeah. So they begin working with another new producer. And this, I think, is the producer that's able to bring out the pop sensibilities that the dude in Caliphone did not. And his name is Dennis Herring. Mm -hmm. Um, It's time to float on. Should we? Let, we um, have to fucking play the song. Let's just get it out of the way. We're gonna rip off the band I've gone through a lot with Float On over the years, and I've come to a place where it's a pretty fucking good song. So let's let's just play Float On. Let's just it's, let's just get there. Let's get in that songs mind. Songs do not get this popular being bad. I never thought it was like a bad song. We're gonna talk about this, but let's let's play Float okay. On. This is Float On. You may have heard it. <laughs> you may know it. That was flowed on. Um, why do you think this song was the smash hit that it was? Do you think it's like something for it's it's undeniably catchy, but it's oh my also God, like, yeah. do you think people just really needed to hear this message? <laughs> it's a fantastic song. The riff is amazing. Judy on bass is amazing. That chant at the end is infectious. Right. I think if you're hearing this band for the first time, like that squelchy voice that you're hearing on the on the verses is just immediately it is intriguing, but also not off putting in the way that I think a lot of like quote unquote bad singers. Because let's face it, Isaac Brock is not a traditionally quote unquote great singer, but his voice isn't off-putting. There's something about it. And I it just, it all worked. Yeah, but can we talk about the music video for just one second? I need to understand. I there was like a really, I'm going to say it, unacceptable trend in music videos and just imagery around this time where it was like, how to even say, like this old-timey, like, speakeasy messy mm. you know yeah twirl the mustache like just like babe what is happening it reaches peak over the next few years and of course then we end up with the fucking mumford and sons course shit i already fucked it up this time deny my dear exactly yes yes it feels like it's Oh my god, I'm watching the video right now. It's just 
It's a lot. And it's like, you know, you can see a bit of that in the cover of the Neutral Milk Hotel album, Aeroplane Over the Sea, has a bit of the same aesthetic vibe. I think Mm. there might be a My Chemical Romance video that also sort of like participates in this vibe. When I was a young boy, my father took me into the city. Blink-182 got into it with a I miss you. Where are you? They're like in that video in black and white playing a stand-up bass and like, I don't know what swept the nation (laughs) around this particular uh, vibe, but I hate it. I just want it to be known for the record. This video to me looks like a diorama (laughs) of like somebody writing doing a diorama about like a victorian novel exactly. like a scene from it but you know um, who's ultimately responsible is uh billy corgan mm, melancholy and infinite sadness babe think yeah about remember back yeah. tonight tonight yeah think of the video you know because i was i was as we discussed earlier i was not listening to a lot of rock music at that time i never really got into the smashing pumpkins and then you need to leave when we did and then I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But then when we did Smashing Pumpkins on 60 songs that explain the 90s, which is a podcast that I produced here on Spotify, please check it out. It's another music and talk show. Shout out Robert Harvilla, former guest of this program. It's called Sex Jams. Fantastic host, gorgeous man, great show. Just the best, dude. And sorry, shout out Isaac. Fantastic. Shout out Isaac, Producer. who's also just the best, dude. Um, I listened to Siamese Dream for about two weeks straight when we were doing that. And like for that month, it was like my all time favorite record. It is just such a great record. But I have never gone back and listened to Melancholy. It's really good. We won't veer off in, into Smashing Pumpkins Land, but I'll just end this conversation by saying it's really good and you need to educate yourself. Um, okay. I'm curious about Float On. Like, I know that there was an interview that Isaac Brock did with um, the AV Club. Mm-hmm. They were like, Float On feels like it was written as a challenge to yourself to write a more like positive song. And he said it was like it was a completely conscious thing. I was kind of fed up with how bad shit had been going and how dark everything was with bad news coming from everywhere. It was a lot of like in response to Iraq war and President Bush and all the bad news. And so he did like he was like, I'll make a cheer up song. I always call this album the Prozac album feels like an antidepressant, not in that everything got happy all of a sudden, but that the edge is gone and there's just a little less wallowing. People are a little less shit. You're a little less shit. Mm. Um, I like the other single. It's pretty good. The Ocean Breeze Salty. Yeah, I do like that song. What I love about that is... That was, I felt like that was Isaac Trojan horsing some of his like existential bullshit onto the radio mm-hmm. where like, mm-hmm. you know, it ends on the you wasted life. Why wouldn't you waste the afterlife? Totally. Should we hear Ocean Breathe Salty? I think we should because it's a good song. And then afterwards, while we're hearing Ocean Breathe Salty, I want you to use your brain and think about a darker song on this album that we can play as a counterpoint because it might be 70% light, but there is some darkness. Okay, this is Ocean Breathe Salty. That was Ocean Breathe Salty. Same vibe. 
same similar vibe feels a little more traditional right like that song was it was popular but like i think only in the sense that it was like the band's second single off the album that had the massive first single and like those things always get a little bit of a push but it was popular yeah a small thing the snare on that song drives me nuts <laughs> the, okay. I, I i just like that's right, snare just, police yeah i would describe this album as the best modest mouse album for people who don't like modest mouse right for for normies <laughs> the best modest mouse album for people who learn about music through npr this was huge like um they played snl hi i'm liam neeson and i'm hosting saturday night live this week with musical guest modest mouse also got nominated for a grammy for best alternative music album isn't that hard to get nominated for one of those small Grammys, though? Like, I think, like, we could get nominated for a podcast Grammy if we really... Oh, my God. They... Red Hot Chili Peppers, Pulit Surprise, and a Grammy. Four-hour episode. Let's do it, baby. Um, most importantly, I think, in the Modest Mouse history and trajectory, they now appear on the OC. You realize we're both screwed. Dude, I'm wearing a wife beater. The glorious television show, The O.C. California, here we come. They played Paper Thin Walls and The View at The Bait Shop. And the best, like, little line was somebody was like, No, it's, it's not Metallica, it's Modest Mouse! Holy shit. Yeah. Um, I think Bury Me With It is a cool song. It's got, like, this very, like, chaotic backwoods energy. I don't like a lot of the fiddle songs, but... Um, the Bukowski song, the song, which is like the most sad male shit ever, right? Making mm-hmm. a song called Bukowski. Mm-hmm. I did not like the song for a couple of years there because I just felt like it was cliche. But when I was, as I've been going back into the Magus Mouse discography for the past, I don't know, few months, you know, just on my own and for this podcast and prepping for the new album and my interview with Isaac, Bukowski is a pretty good song. I think my favorite song on the record um, I wouldn't necessarily say it's sad. It kind of sounds like the clash at points, but it's called Black Cadillacs. And it's just really, it's really driving. And it just has this, this really sweet sentiment of like, we named our children after towns where we've never been, that we've never been to. And I think about all like the dumb white kid names I know, right? Like that makes a lot of sense, but <laughs> it's just this real sweet sentiment of like Isaac, like, acknowledging a future family. I had, I think he had a child at this point, but later he would grow to have a child. I really like Black Cadillacs. Okay. I just want to say regarding Bukowski, the writer, not the song, um, every like several years, the internet gets together and decides that some book or writer is unacceptable. And you know what? Bukowski's good. <laughs> like, I think we're going to say every few years they get together and cancel Bukowski. But that probably is also happening, but Bukowski's good. Also, one of my favorite poets. That's all I just wanted to say for the record. Bukowski is great, but Bukowski's also inspired a lot of shitty male personas. Much like Nirvana did to music. It doesn't make them any worse. Um, oh, my God. I'm not saying that, Dylan. Um, <laughs> what does Dylan want you to say? Well, she just needed to mention to me that uh, Float On was featured in the television program Girl Boss in 2017. Let's hear your favorite song. Black Cadillacs. Uh, 
black Cadillacs. When we were done, done, done with all the fuck, fuck, fucking around. That was black Cadillacs. Um, I just want to point out, just for like context and timing, I'm, I already mentioned Death Cab for Cutie, but here we are again. I don't think you can talk about Modest Mouse without talking about Death Cab for Cutie at a certain point. Because Death Cab for Cutie has at this also put out their biggest album in 2003, mm. Transatlanticism. Transatlanticism, yes. They're huge. Also, also Postal Service. Also Postal Service, massive. I love that Postal Service album. Um, they also Ooh, appeared months. on the OC and Six Feet Under. I assume that whoever was a, a music supervisor for Six Feet Under, um, big indie rock band. What do you make of Death Cab for Cutie in relation to Modest Mouse? Like, do you feel that they that it's fair to say that they're in the same world. I personally don't feel that they are similar bands because I came into the band with Lonesome Crowded West, but I understand why other people do. So a few weeks ago, I was playing around with that. Did you see that to reference Pitchfork for like the fifth time here? Your favorite website. So they they put this thing where you type in the band that you like and they will show you where they're discography ranks is they visualize it as a chart but they also put all the bands that are similar to them too it's basically a pitchfork finally did a recommend if you like tool but the shins and death cab for cutie they were the bands that came up as the most similar bands to modest mouse in this thing right and for a second i'm like well that's not right it's like built to spill and quasi and like totally. you know even elliot smith and i'm just thinking like indie indie rock from the pacific northwest even though i don't think elliot smith sounds like modest mouse right that they're more aligned in my head than the shins and obviously and death cab for cutie which obviously death cabs from that same general region but i just consider it different music but that's me no i agree with you i think i was that is exactly what i wanted to hear you say because i think like the point of it is that like they simply intersected at this time because of the wild leap that good news for people who love bad news. Good news for bad people. Good news for bad people who love bad news for bad good people. Um, Rolls right off the tongue. It's a really good catchy title. It just, it put them, like basically indie rock was peaking (laughs) in this sense and these were the most palatable offerings. but then Johnny Marr of a band that you may have heard of called The Smiths is tapped to join Modest Mouse. We didn't need that. What happened there? I don't really know what happened there. I've never really discovered it. So I, I got to say, um, there are some people out there who contend that We Were Dead Before the Ship Even Sank is Modest Mouse's best record. Those people are very wrong. I, you know, like I said about Good News, I think that is the record the best Modest Mouse album for people who don't like Modest Mouse. Mm. I don't feel that way about We Were Dead before the ship even sank. I feel like that was a record that leaned way too far into the impulses of Float On and what have you. And it almost felt to me personally, Dashboard and Fire It Up, they seem to be overt attempts to recreate the magic of Float On. Right. And... Again, I don't want to use the term sellout, but like that's like the bad point of that's the bad part of having a hit is trying to chase that. And I don't know if they were really doing that. Like Isaac seems strikes me as like 
a dude who does whatever he wants to do at any given moment. So I don't know if there was pressure on him that he fell. I have no idea. I just know that I do not like this record. Okay. Tell us how you really feel. I don't think the Johnny Marr period was for me. Are you blaming Johnny Marr? No, I'm blaming the circumstances that allow Johnny Marr to <laughs> enter this environment. Why don't we play a song off of the Johnny Marr album uh, <laughs> of Modest Mouse? I-, I remember I read somewhere that Johnny Marr had joined the band just to play. Like he was just supposed to play live because they were touring for a right, long, right. They were touring for a long time off of um, good news. Good news for pe- bad people. Um, and then after like a couple of years, he got sort of antsy and said to Isaac, "Like I want, I want to write music. Like we need to write music. Like we're playing the same fucking songs. It's been like three years or whatever." And Isaac was like, "Oh, okay." <laughs> and then the we were dead before the ship even sank. But only, well, I only say that to be like maybe it maybe it was like there wasn't a there there to write from, you know. But it was more just like oh, we should do this. And maybe that's why you don't like the album. Maybe that's what it is. I There is one song on this album I absolutely love. Okay. So e- even it. despite my feelings, we'll, we'll hear this one. It's, it's of course, a, an, eight, an eight minute song. Um, so we're I'm, parting. I mean, if people are, are with us at this point, they're with us. So um, it's called Spittin' Venom. And it is, it's a fucking great song. Um, we should hear Spittin' Venom. Okay, this is Spitting Venom. Your words were not so clear, now drop. That was called Spitting Venom. Um, I won't lie to you, Justin, he almost lost me there. Because it took too long to drop? It too, took too, almost too long to drop, and I was like... Okay, so we're back to Tom Waits' core. We're ugly Casanovaing a little bit. Um, but then, you know, it got good. And then I was like, okay, in, in light of knowing what comes later, I now I understand um, what he was doing there, and it's enjoyable. So is this album largely sort of like the inclinations that were on display in Ugly Casanova, which might have been more leaning towards sort of like Tom Waitsy, bluesy, you know, yeah. spare and there was, music. And there was there was one song in particular on Good News for People Who Love Bad News that was very Tom Waitsy. I think it featured the the nitty gritty dirt band, if that's an actual thing. Hmm. There's like there's like a horn and there's a fucking banjo with a lot of banjo coming into the band around this time and i didn't really like there was some banjo on lonesome crowd at west but it didn't feel like banjo some of the shit right. feels like banjo. you hate not- banjo i think it's been famously established at this point 2011 was just wild like dudes you know with like beard butter and mm-hmm. <laughs> plaid and suspenders everywhere and like cabbie hats and bow ties thousand percent no what the fuck were we doing producer dylan says on behalf of the pacific northwest i apologize for all of this um yeah it sounds like the modest mouse was maybe blueprinting a bit of barn core that came uh, after them here yeah they i think they absolutely are i think they were early on the bar- on the barn core wave <laughs> um producer dylan has pointed out to me that um johnny marr said in an interview that um his time in modest mouse was the best time of his life which I Jesus feel like Christ. is just a shot at Morrissey. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, like it's like a the, sick way to be like, fuck you, Morrissey. The best time of his life, huh? People like this record. Uh, former former Bandsplane guest Rob Mitchum, shout out Rob Mitchum, uh, reviewed the record for Pitchfork, and it got a respectable 7.8. Yeah, people like the record. I was being a little too harsh about this record, but I don't, I do not, overall, I do not enjoy this record. Um, okay, so after the Johnny Marr album, we were dead before the ship even sank, um, Johnny Marr left um, and mm. he uh, made the band or joined the band The Cribs. Um, not a bad band, TBH. And then they don't, they don't put out an album for a while. They just became like a touring band. They toured a fucking shit ton. Well, they were actually supposed to put out a record very soon after this, and it ended up um, Isaac Good in his head about the record. Uh-huh. He kept writing songs for it and remixing it. There were rumors that they were working with Chris Novoselic. There were um, reports that they were working with Big Boy from Outkast as a producer. Um, it was a very strange time. It ended up taking eight years for the record to come out. They tore a lot. Um, when they finally put it out, it was called Strangers to Ourselves. And the thing about a Modest Mouse album taking eight, years is you think that it's going to sound like this incredible leap forward and what was strange about strangers to ourselves is it didn't it sounded like a modest mouse album that could have come out basically at any point in the previous eight years it's a good thing right i mean also eric judy had left the band we have we've like done a really bad job of mentioning like the ever-changing lineups eric judy is important because he was there from the beginning but like right you know dan gallucci was in this band Dan gallucci from um murder city devils was in this band briefly joe Plummer was in this band briefly joe Plummer plays in cold war kids now they've had a rotating cast but eric judy leaving i think is kind of important it is very big you know i made it a point to shout out eric judy right at the beginning i made it a point to shout out that he joined isaac and ugly casanova right like eric yeah. judy is the bass player that you love so much on tiny cities made of ashes and he was just such a big part of the band but he leaves at this time and coyotes is a really beautiful song on strangers to ourselves coyote is just really beautiful um there's a song called god is an indian and you're an asshole which is probably my favorite title for a modest mouse song but not your favorite song it's a fine little song. It's like a minute and a half. It's great. Uh, but it's not my favorite. It's not my favorite Modest Mouse song. Come on. All right. Well, why don't we hear Coyotes? Coyotes tiptoe in the snow after dark. That was Coyotes off the album Strangers to Ourselves, the Modest Mouse album that came out in 2015. Now, let me ask you a question. What's up? Why this song? Because. The album isn't very good. Um, okay, so this is like, you're just like, this is the best of what we had to choose from. It's a very sweet song. The video, I remember the video is like coyotes on abandoned subways. And that really struck me at that point in my life. It felt very poignant. Um, the album is fine, right? So the, the funny thing about this album is it took so long to make. It took seven years from... We were dead before the ship even sank for this to come out. Right. And there was a lot of tinkering going on. Isaac said to me when I interviewed him last month, he said he just couldn't get out of his head about the album. Right. And you would think that because of that, the songs on here would feel overwrought, overproduced. Right. They didn't, but they felt a little lifeless and Mm. it almost felt... I, I've described it as Modest Mouse paint by numbers. Like it felt like they were hitting different beats from their past mm-hmm. without really doing anything 
that felt particularly interesting. Do you think that was the intention? They were kind of like, well, let's give the people what they want and here's the things that they liked in the past. I don't I don't I don't know if I necessarily feel that way. I feel like it was just not a particularly fertile creative period. Okay. I thought that I would possibly never like another Modest Mouse album after this came out. Wow. So it nearly murdered your fandom is what you're no, saying. No, I, I, I don't want to say because I mean, there's still all the, all the, all the, I just didn't expect that anything that they put out after this right, right. would be anything that I enjoyed. I felt like, okay, you know, I, I was not a fan of the direction on We Were Dead. This felt like a step backwards for a band that always was pushing their music in new directions. Coyotes is a fine song off this album. It's just, I I find it to be very sweet and tender. I don't think I pull it up frequently, but it's fine. Okay, but spoiler alert, you did listen to the next album. I really like the next album. So the next album is the most recent Modest Mouse album. Came out in June. In June 2021. Yeah. It's called The Golden Casket. Mm -hmm. Gorgeous, uplifting title. Did you, because, you know, you've mentioned um, very subtly and beautifully that you did um, interview Isaac Brock around this album and publish (laughs) it on theringer.com. Would you have, like, run to listen to this album had you not had to do it for work? Yes, I would. I'm always going to be a day one listen of Modest Mouse. Okay, I hear you. It's This is a really personally important band for you and and I you know I think you're not alone you know there's so many Modest Mouse fans what was the reception to this new album speaking of I think that the overwhelming response was hey this is okay what more can you hope for in life really (laughs) I know (laughs) I don't think people really expected that much after Strangers to Ourselves like the reviews on that were kind of middling I think the early singles were not exactly promising, but they sound much better in the context of the album, I should say. But when they first came out, like the first single was We Are Between. Hello, hello, hello. It sounds like they listened to way too much LCD sound system, which is never a place you should be in, you know. Should not create art from that place. Yes. But in the context of the album, I feel like it works. When the album actually came out, people seem to really enjoy it. It is a different album, right? So if Strangers to Ourselves was Modest Mouse paint by numbers, as I've described it, which mm-hmm. feel people may feel free to disagree with if they choose, um, sure. this felt like the band was moving in another direction. Um, this album was originally supposed to feature no guitars. Isaac eventually would record some guitars, but musically, sonically, it's just a very different experience. Lyrically, it's funny. In some ways, the closest analog is actually Lonesome Crowded West, mm-hmm. where the, there's like a big bad boogeyman here with Lonesome Crowded West, who is obviously sprawl and urbanization and sure. retail shopping centers. Here, it's the creep of technology. Mm. This is it's very, very, very hopeful in a lot of ways. Um which is funny because the other half of the album is just a screed against how technology is destroying us. But but he has a song on there called Lace Your Shoes, which is about him watching his very young children grow up. One, then two, then three, you. I'm working to be better. 
he has another song on there called We're Lucky, which really, I don't think there's anything to do other than take this at face value and it just him saying we're we're lucky um we're, we're we're lucky to be alive we're lucky to be surviving these are some places that we're lucky just to be between you know in the past he's had songs like talking shit about a pretty sunset and now he has on, on the new album there's one song about like how beautiful the sun is well the sun hasn't left the sea still has yet like it's just he's in a good place in a lot of respects and then in some others He's saying some, you know, I, I guess best way to say is concerning things, like whether that's about society or about him personally. It's Who can relate? It's this weird dichotomy. <laughs> Justin, what about you tell me a song off this album that we should hear? Let's do Never Fuck a Spider on the Fly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> That was Never Fuck a Spider on the Fly. It's not particularly for me. What is for you right now, Yasi? <laughs> I'm of two minds, right? Where I'm like, of course, I think artists should evolve, right? And like, that's like, you don't want, like, they're not going to make Moon in Antarctica 12 times, you know? Like, that's just, that wouldn't be satisfying either, even though that's like, probably what my heart craves but at the same time i think sometimes an evolution just goes past what i liked about the band um oh yeah oh, and yeah. that's okay you know like it's that's this is not maybe for me oh yeah and you know what it's fine if i was an artist i would probably be like fuck this bitch and her like i'm sorry you only like the 12 year old album <laughs> like we made new stuff now move on with your life and to him i say you're correct, sir. I do need to move on with my life. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I think that it was surprising to me that I liked this album. I obviously don't like it as much as I like the earlier work. But as I've been preparing for this episode, I've been listening to, you know, there were points where I was listening to exclusively Modest Mouse again for the first time in years, like just exclusively. And mm. so much of that is just, it's so heavy. Yeah, totally. This was like nice and airy and it was night in places and it was nice to hear Isaac in like a really like genuinely good place and there was no Johnny Marr. Okay. It's been documented how you feel about Johnny Marr. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I hear you. And I think that, again, you're a good representative of like a true Modest Mouse fan. And I think like the litmus for like how this is as an album is more you than me, you know? And Speaking of true uh, diehard Modest Mouse fans. Yes. Your people. Um, mm -hmm. We went ahead and rounded a bunch of them up. Okay. To come talk to us about how they feel about Modest Mouse. Do you want to hear it? Let's, let's please, please. I can't wait. Float on. They were not a Seattle band. They were an Issaquah band. And that was clearly him trying to differentiate them from other Seattle-based bands that I guess he just didn't want to be, you know, lumped in with. Rock's sort of lispy, uh, yelpy vocal range, all the different voices he could do were so odd and yet so honest and 
full of emotion and humor and wit and intellect, uh, but not overboard on any of those things. It felt true and emotional and uh, a little bit abrasive. I sort of understood indie rock to be this very linear thing and Modest Mouse kind of existed outside of that to some degree. The guitar was like more herky-jerky and the singers wasn't very good. And so why am I enjoying this as much as I am? Because I, you know, I like this and I, I shouldn't. I was a sheltered Christian kid who had just quote unquote discovered like secular music. I had just gotten into Le Tigre and Riot Girl, and I was ready for like grungy, loud, lyric-driven music. So Modest Mouse was perfect for that. The fact that they released this perfect 73-minute, 15-track epic seven years before they ever went mainstream with Float On is kind of an anomaly. They released a perfect album. I mean, I'm looking it up right here. Pitchfork gave it a 10 out of 10. So I'm not the only one who thinks Lonesome Crowded West is the best. Long story short, Float On came out and then I turned into like a elitist at school who I had to explain to all my friends, this band is my favorite band and this is their first bad album and this is their first bad song. and. You don't understand, and I do. I don't know or even care. My brain's the weak heart and my heart's the long stairs. I don't know why I think of that line probably once a week. I probably shouldn't. I think it's the mark of an unwell person. There's just a lot going on that I think in a lesser band's hands, it would be an absolute hot mess. You know, I describe the band as sounding like a guy playing guitar falling down the stairs, and I don't really mean that in a bad way. It's just so jangly and off-kilter and feels almost paranoid at times. And as a young person with undiagnosed anxiety and mental illness, it felt like I was at home with this frenetic landscape of sound. You can hear the despair in Dramamine, and I liked the weird reverbs that they'd made. The lyrics were droll, and the imagery like matched suburbia perfect. They seemed to exist in this world that was their own, of their own design, this kind of endless sprawling landscape of abject depression. And I always felt like, oh, I'm in there too, that's me. I'm also sad a lot. All the best indie rock bands are gone or cranking out a subpar album every seven years, but Modest Mouse is still doing it, still being weird for all of us creeps. And I really, <laughs> really appreciate that. They had thoughts. Um... I can't help but agree with the unwell comment as an unwell person myself. The Modest Mouse catalog should just be called Sad Music for Sad People. That's a good documentary name. Let's do it. So, Justin, when you interviewed Isaac, um, there was also a, a funny little story about, you know, again, if anyone needs more clarification that you are the Modest Mouse man, um, you have a Modest Mouse tattoo and you did. You did like a eager, an eager fan bring it up to Mr. Brock. Ostensibly a journalist. Mm -hmm. And I think you're like one, not supposed to have tattoos of people you could uh, potentially interview one day, but also definitely not supposed to bring it up. Yet here I was presented with the opportunity to tell Isaac Brock that I had a tattoo inspired by a Modest Mouse song. And his first question was, Oh man, was it like a tattoo of you kicking my ass or something? Which is <laughs> this is fantastic. And then I told him what it is, which is a baby blue sedan tattoo. 
which is inspired, of course, by the song Baby Blue Sedan. And he said he would like to see it. So after the interview ended, I texted it to him and he did not respond. I mean, it's, an, it's a good okay, time. The reason I got the Baby Blue Sedan tattoo over like, you know, something that was like blatantly Modest Mouse because if he gets canceled, right, I can just pass this off as like my granddad's car or something. So there were like more obsessive tattoos that people have that he's definitely seen over the years. So I'm just saying, I was a little bummed, but I will float on. Sure. Don't ever meet your heroes or show them your tattoos that were inspired by them. Um, Justin, thank you so much for coming on. Um, Thank you so much for once again publicly cementing your role as the go-to modest mouse man at the ringer which i have to assume there's literally nobody else it's just you um yeah yeah (laughs) and thank you everybody for listening what song do you want to leave everyone with um on their their float on journey as they float on away into oh i didn't didn't realize i would have i would have to do this um you do have to Let's end on the final song on Lonesome Carter West, Styrofoam Boots, slash It's All on Ice, All Right. Amazing. Okay, thanks everybody for joining us. Come back every Thursday for a new episode of Bandsplain. And here's that song that Justin just said with the long title that I don't remember. Goodbye. If you liked what you heard today, subscribe for more episodes of Bandsplain, only on Spotify. Our wonderful guest today was Justin Sales. Follow him on Twitter at DoxEllis, D-O-X-E-L-L-I-S. Huge, huge thank you to the very sad Modest Mouse mega fans you heard on this episode, Angela D'Avignon, Hank May, Brian Woods, Nico Stratus, Dave Horowitz, and Crow Jonah Norlander. Bandsplain is a Spotify original show. This episode was produced by the moon to my Antarctica, producer Dylan, a.k.a. Dylan Tupper Rupert, and edited by Michael Hardman with help from Casey Simonson and Tari Miller. Executive producers for Bandsplain are Gina Delvac and me, Yasi Salik. Our gorgeous and catchy theme song was composed and performed by Bethany Cosentino and Jennifer Clavin, and graciously recorded by Carlos de la Garza in Los Angeles, California. Special thanks to Felipe Guillermino, Robert Adler, Leah Edwards, David McDonough, Dana Meyerson, Jessica Hopper and the framed drawing of Dave Matthews I got on Depop whose spirit does continue to guide this entire show come back every Thursday for a new episode of Bandsplain only on Spotify I don't deserve this (laughs) 